I listen to the diaries because it sparks ideas for new adventures. Whether it is an episode about an epic adventure or a backyard micro-adventure, I start thinking about my next adventure. I'm inspired by the people and their stories to go a little farther and dig a little deeper. If you want to add more spark to your adventurous ideas, consider subscribing to the Diaries Plus today. I'm Crystal, a longtime listener from the foothills of the Blue Ridge Mountains in North Carolina. Thanks to everyone who has subscribed to the Diaries Plus. It's been awesome, and you're powering the show as we move into the future. If you're interested in subscribing today, there's a link in the show notes. Please join. Now, on to the show. Hey, Fitz. Hey, Cordelia. How's it going? Good. So I have a question for you today. Okay. Usually you do. <laughs> I will try to be prepared I'm for failing. it. What is your question? I was wondering if you, from all of the time you've spent outside in your life, if you have had any memorable experiences with wildlife. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think there's sometimes like there's the obvious ones. Like I remember, you know, being a kid in the water in Florida and, and like seeing a shark just like, whoosh, like oh pass God. through the wave in front of me. And, and, you know, I mean, I think there's like the things of like seeing gri- like a grizzly in, in the Arctic or sometimes like the massive salmon runs in, in Alaska. Um, but th- those are like pretty fleeting for me though. Those are like quick things that like inspire these, like um, there's, there's, they just happen quickly. I think mm-hmm. is what they are. One, I think experience is that Becca and I got stuck in a crazy early season blizzard in uh, the Sierra in mm-hmm. the in California, and it it was legit. Like we were pretty deep. Mm-hmm. Um, we were about as deep in the Sierra as you could be, and it wasn't forecasted. And it we like tried to wait it out, and we realized like we realized that the forecast was wrong, and it was one of those things where we left camp and had to you know kind of make it 15 miles back to the road and at some point like we ended up above tree line and it was like a full white out mm-hmm. and i remember this um these these prints appearing in the snow in front of me and it was it was a deer and i could just still barely make out where there was a trail and i remember being like so focused on the trail you know being like i gotta stay on the trail mm-hmm. and it you know but it's like the snow is piling up and like you know, you, like in some places you can see that there's like a slight depression in the trail and then there'd be these, I'd lose it. And then there'd be these, you know, tracks in the snow. And finally I just, there's like epitome of being like, I, this animal knows where it's going hmm. and why am I worried about the trail? And it, it, it was this crazy moment of just being like, I mean, in a way I just was like, screw it. I'm following this, this deer, hmm. this deer is going to lead me out. It's going to get me over the pass I need to get over. It's just like, it knows what it's doing out here. It doesn't need a trail or a GPS line. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to follow it. And and I did. Hmm. And I'm still here telling stories about things like that today. Wow. So it, it worked out. But um, that's so cool. yeah, I don't know. that That's like dropping in and being held by a, hmm. like another presence or another creature. I love that. Out in the wild. Yeah. I don't know. How about you? I spent a lot of time hanging around animals because where we grew up, I grew up in Wyoming and we actually had rabbits as kids and I love rabbits. Uh, and I had a rabbit. I, I had a rabbit too. You had, 
You had a yeah. rabbit? I think it got oh. eaten by a raccoon. <laughs> I know. I think ours got eaten by an owl eventually. But this isn't supposed to be a sad story. The, oh, okay. <laughs> we had two that we named Odessa and Lotzi, and they had a bunch of bunnies. They were born under our sandbox, and so we, like, they didn't, they weren't born in captivity, and um, I took it upon myself to make them comfortable with me holding them, which took a long time because, like, as technically, like, wild rabbits, when they come out and they're, like, literally the size of a cotton ball, and they're super skittish and just, like, cute, but... I would come home from school and just like drop my bag and spend hours slowing down my rhythm and breathing and just like very, very gently approaching these tiny little fuzzballs until until they trusted me. And it was sort of a, a communication in a language that had to be so mindful and so embodied. Um, you know, as I feel like in our culture, like we spent so much time in our minds thinking about things, measuring things, and and for me to get home from school and just, I think I was in seventh or eighth grade, but still like just to get home from school and just completely change the way I was communicating. Um, I just always noticed how how vividly they were listening to their environment and sensing the changes in the wind and the light and like everything they would perk up their ears and their eyes. And it taught me to listen to like, oh, I see a shadow that there's a bird going overhead. We're going to hide now. <laughs> and like it's it was a kind of listening that I think we're able to be really unaware of in the world that we live in, but interacting with those animals was, yeah, it was it was cool and definitely taught me a lot. It is incredible when you think about that of like meeting creatures kind of at their level. You've got a story about that today, right? I do have a story about that today. Yeah, we have a whole story about a journey that no one had ever attempted before that was all inspired by a majestic orange butterfly. I'm Fitzcahal. I'm Cordelia Zars. And you're listening to the Dirtbag Diaries. In 2015, Canadian paraglider Benjamin Jordan climbed up a volcano in the Sierra Madre Mountains in Mexico. He launched off the top and soared out above the Valle de Bravo. We use the, the heat from the sun that heats the earth that creates these invisible columns of rising air. We find these invisible columns, we turn in them, gain elevation, and then we glide to the next invisible column. But when you get shaded out, for instance, by a bunch of cloud, then those invisible columns don't exist anymore. And it doesn't matter how good of a pilot you are, you're going to be on the ground. It's only a matter of time. As Benjamin glided over the valley, some clouds passed in front of the sun. He aimed for a clearing and drifted down out of the sky. I was in this weird meadow, about 3,000 meters above sea level, um, so pretty high. And oddly, I was sort of surrounded by these butterflies. And it wasn't just any butterfly. It was the butterflies that I remembered growing up as a kid, they were monarch butterflies. And so I thought, oh, this is kind of cool. Like we have these up in Canada. 
So I packed up my stuff and I noticed that they were kind of concentrated around the edge of a forest. So I kind of walked there and then I looked into the forest and I could see even more of them. And so I just started walking along this trail. And at some point I looked down and, and I saw all these monarchs like dying or dead on the ground on the trail and the shrubs close to the side of the trail. And it was pretty devastating. Benjamin wondered what on earth had happened to all these butterflies. They littered the forest floor and obscured the trunks of trees. As he peered into the canopy, he saw branches drooping towards the ground with the weight of hundreds of thousands of butterfly bodies. Horrified, he turned to leave. As he walked back towards the meadow, the sun came out. All of a sudden, they went from brown and kind of bumpy to bright orange. And boom, all of a sudden, all these butterflies started flying everywhere. And I'm just inside of this sort of tornado of orange. I can't even hear the wind rustling anymore. All I can hear is the sound of millions upon millions of butterfly wings flapping all around me. Benjamin hustled back to the town where he was staying. He asked locals if they'd seen the butterflies. They told him that that exact spot marked the end of their long migration from Canada to Mexico. I learned that these butterflies aren't the same as the butterflies from Canada. These butterflies are actually from Canada. They're the same as me. They went down there for the season. It's not just perfect conditions for paragliding, it's perfect conditions for monarch butterflies. Fascinated, Benjamin went back to his lodging and dove into research. Monarch butterflies, he learned, fly up to 3,000 miles, or 4,800 kilometers, from Canada to Mexico to overwinter, crossing over mountains, deserts, and plains. They weigh less than a paperclip. And you think that's crazy, right? Check this out. They've never been there before. Their parents have never been there before. Their parents have never been there before. It's their parents that were there one year ago that begun the migration from that spot in Mexico north towards Canada. So across three or four generations, these butterflies are not just able to do this insane record-breaking longest journey by butterfly, but that they can nail it. Not just to the right, you know, zone, the right country. That would be impressive. I'm talking about a space no larger than a school playground. The monarch's southbound migration takes place within a single generation, with butterflies that live up to nine months. Once in Mexico, they lay eggs, and then the new generation begins the flight north once spring arrives. Unlike the southbound migration, traveling north happens over three or four generations— with each flying several hundred kilometers, laying eggs, dying, and then passing the torch off to their offspring to continue the trek up to Canada. Benjamin learned that although scientists have been able to somewhat explain how the monarch navigates, they can't explain how it can be so exact in its location, nor how it's able to pass that exact location down through the generations. Now, Benjamin has spent the better part of his life mastering the craft of flying and navigating with a human brain and the newest technology to assist it. 
and he still gets grounded every time a cloud passes in front of the sun. Not to mention what happens in storms or high winds. To think that this thing that I thought was so insignificant and really just something that's at the whim of whatever direction the wind is blowing is something that is so masterful in the execution of this massive migration that it is beyond anything that humans can understand. It, for me, is on the level of extraterrestrial life. The gears in Benjamin's brain started spinning. In addition to flapping their wings, butterflies use thermals in a similar way to paragliders to rise into the sky. They land in the same spot in Mexico that paragliders chose for its ideal flying. Benjamin and the butterflies, they had to have something in common. I felt as though the monarch butterfly contained some special sort of wisdom that I could connect with. Because of the variability in terrain and climate, along with the sheer distance, no paraglider had ever attempted to fly from Mexico to Canada. But that didn't stop Benjamin from dreaming. I felt that if I could recreate their migration by paraglider, that I would be able to learn some of the, you know, some of the business that the monarch is up to and be able to gain from their wisdom. Five years later, Benjamin drove with his partner Lindsay to the southern border of Arizona. That vision he'd had about paragliding from Mexico to Canada like the monarch, well, he was about to try to make that dream reality. He chose a five-month window to fly from Mexico to Canada. He opted to travel from south to north so that he could chase summer up the continent. Although the butterfly's migrational path routes through the Midwest rather than the Rockies, Benjamin would have to travel along the Continental Divide. He needed the mountains and their associated thermals to launch his paraglider. Beginning in April, he planned to paraglide through Arizona, Utah, Idaho, and Montana, and then finish just over the border of Canada in late August or early September. Benjamin studied maps, weather reports, and public land access along his route. He packed t-shirts to sweat through in the desert, and puffies to shiver through during his high-altitude flights. He planned to restock food every couple of weeks in towns near his land and launch destinations. When he stuffed his pack full of water, ramen, peanut butter, and camp supplies, it weighed close to 100 pounds. Lindsay would follow him in a van, camping with him where he landed and helping to document the expedition so that they could produce a film once Benjamin finished. But she wouldn't supply food or drive him anywhere, and would only help with a rescue if things got dire. Since his encounter with the butterflies in 2015, Benjamin had completed several record-setting solo paragliding expeditions in preparation for his flight of the monarch. He'd flown from Vancouver to Calgary, 1,000 kilometers unsupported. He'd flown the entire length of the Canadian Rockies, 1,200 kilometers unsupported. Now, in 2020, he felt ready to tackle the big one, 2,835 kilometers across the U.S.
So I, I wish that I could say that day one and launch one coincided, um, but that would be very wishful thinking. You know, literally the night before the country, like certain states are starting to go into lockdown because there's this brand new coronavirus. And Lindsay and I, as much preparing as we did, we didn't prepare for that. The borders closed. Unable to start in Mexico, Benjamin set his launch as close as he could get, right next to the border, south of Tucson. He stuck his arm through the border fence and began his migration north. But yeah, so day one, um, leaving there, hiking up a canyon called Montezuma Canyon and uh, hoping to fly, but realizing that like southern Arizona is actually really, really windy in the springtime. Because paragliders are so light and travel slowly, a 30-kilometer-per-hour wind can be enough to push the glider right back to where it started. And the wind in the Huachuca Mountains was clocking well over 30 kilometers per hour. So I was grounded for the first week of the expedition, literally just sitting there trying to you know, pump water through a filter out of a creek. Lindsay provided moral support through a dry and discouraging first week in the desert. Finally, the winds abated enough to allow Benjamin his first flight. Uh, we're able to complete our first 60-kilometer flight north, uh, which you know we were both really excited about and thought, okay, here we go. The expedition's really started. Um, but we then got stuck for basically two weeks at the next little mountain range called the Mustangs because that wind just came back and it never let up. And so I was never really able to fly more than a few kilometers, even though I tried almost every single day. It got really, really discouraging really fast for me because I realized that I kind of have made a career of throwing my hat over the wall, taking on things that were bigger than me, and then just kind of like learning on the job. That's super exciting. But I realized that that the risk is that I may end up biting off more than I can chew. And I really felt that in this case I had, that I was way out of my league. I didn't know how to fly in the desert. My flights were really short. And um, there was a lot of days that were just too windy. Still, Benjamin kept making progress north, even if his flights were short. By the end of April, he made it to the Rincon Wilderness east of Tucson. He climbed up to a high point and launched into a thermal. And all of a sudden, pretty much straight off launch, I'm up at like 5,500 meters above sea level. That's 18,000 feet. Benjamin got a splitting headache and had to dig out his oxygen canister mid-flight. The layers he sweat through in Arizona started to feel pretty chilly. Yeah, very, very, very cold. It went from being very hot on the ground (laughs) to excruciatingly cold. And you really start to see the curvature of the Earth. And I was so high, I felt like an astronaut, you know, coming back to Earth. And that was just such an amazing flight. My progress had been so slow, you know, making these like short little 20 kilometer hops. And then all of a sudden, you know, over the course of about four hours, I was able to, to clear 108 kilometers. Benjamin landed in a valley near the town of Winkleman, where the Gila River cuts through the desert north of Tucson. He climbed up to the top of a copper mine to try to get a lift. And I just could not find any lift to save my life. Every day I figured, okay, it's going to get better. It's going to get better. Just try it again, try it again. And every day I'd end up just kissing the ground. So grateful to be on the ground because it gets so windy. I realized that I burned through, you know, 25% of the season, the five months that I had. Meanwhile, I've only done like 10%. 
max of the journey and that essentially unless something really big changes like i'm not going to finish this expedition i'm not even going to get halfway through it the high winds in winkleman forced benjamin to hoof it 35 kilometers to the next mountain range the superstition mountains just east of phoenix that was so so welcoming they were much taller much steeper much more like what I'm used to flying, you know, in the Canadian Rockies in, in terms of just their, their size. And, you know, sure enough, they worked. Um, I was able to climb out of there and really from that point forward, start making, you know, substantial progress, only being able to fly every few days. But every time I flew, I was flying at least 50, 60 kilometers, um, which was just excellent. And the further north we got, the easier it got partially because the mountains got bigger, but also because the valley floor was getting higher and higher as we got towards Flagstaff, which meant that everything was just getting colder and the cactus disappeared. All of a sudden there's like pine trees, there's rivers that like actually have water in them, which was just, you know, something that I totally take for granted coming from Canada. But yeah, we were stoked to be up North and from Flagstaff, that was the the second longest flight of the expedition. I flew all the way to the sort of northeast corner of the Grand Canyon. From northern Arizona, Benjamin crossed into Utah. Many paragliders consider Utah to be the holy grail of paragliding, sporting giant mountains and large stretches of unforested desert for safe lands. Eager to prove his mettle, Benjamin hiked to the summit of Monroe Peak, a mountain iconic for its mega-long-distance cross-country flights. But what he thought he had in the bag didn't go as planned. That's after the break. Support for the Diaries comes from Ketone IQ. As I've been getting more and more into longer runs and bike rides, I found myself fighting with my mind. As the miles extend, I feel like my reactions get slower and I make more mistakes, like tripping or falling or just kind of feeling slightly out of sync descending on the bike. On those big days, I've been using Ketone IQ to help my brain keep fueled and sharp. I want to have fun, not bonk. Here's the science. Ketones already exist in your body. When you push up against your boundaries, your body begins to convert stored fat into ketones, which your brain prefers consuming. With Ketone IQ, I feed my brain so my muscles can use the glucose I get from whatever else I eat on the trail. Riders of the Tour de France have been taking the same approach. I am definitely not as fast, but I can apply the same thinking. Give it a try. You save 30% off your first subscription order at ketone.com backslash dirtbagdiaries. Once again, that's ketone.com backslash dirtbagdiaries. The link is in the show notes. Please check it out. Support comes from Kuat Racks. The Piston SR is a single-rail bike rack that easily mounts on most roof racks, overlanding utility racks, and truck bed rack systems. The dual-ratcheting piston arm grabs your tires and makes no contact with the bike frame. So, that's better for your bike, right? Plus, the rack has an all-metal construction, genuine Kashima coat, and integrated cable locks. That translates to being super burly. Kuat has taken their Piston Pro X and elevated it. Find more details at kuat.com. Kuat, because you will absolutely love this rack. You know, now I'm on Monroe Peak. That's really like, I feel like it'd be like Times Square of cross-country paragliding in the United States. And so 
Of course, there's other pilots there because it's a good day. So I'm intimidated. I don't want them to know what I'm doing. I kept this thing totally secret. Um, but I ended up in the sky with a bunch of them and I start going north and there's another pilot that's going north kind of just behind me, I realized. So I'm thinking, okay, okay, you know, this is cool. You know, like, well, we can fly together. Hopefully we have similar level of experience. So we're flying together and I'm always kind of out front and I'm feeling pretty good about myself thinking like, yeah, this is what I get for flying every day I can for the last two months thinking, you know, I'm hot shit. And, um, you know, it wasn't very long before I look back and he was probably like a vertical kilometer above me. And the wind had become so strong that I could not fly back into whatever lift he had found. I could only go forward. And I just kept getting lower and lower and lower until I was just trying to negotiate landing backwards in a very windy canyon and looking up and seeing him, you know, just a little speck in the sky above me. Benjamin landed roughly. He packed up his gear and booted out of the canyon. When he set up camp that evening, he checked the internet to see if the other pilot had posted his flight. And I probably shouldn't have checked it because whereas I'd flown like 40 kilometers that day, he'd flown 160 kilometers. And up until that point, you know, I would have been totally fine with a 40 kilometer flight. That was not that bad for me for, for the Monarca expedition. But I was always able to tell myself that, you know, whatever I did, I flew the max potential of the day and that I didn't need to be hard on myself. But in this case, it was so clear that I hadn't flown the max potential of the day. It was so clear that I had only actually flown a quarter of the what could potentially be the max potential of the day. Ashamed, Benjamin felt the urge to hike back up the canyon to the top of Monroe Peak and try the flight again. Maybe he could just delete that flight from history and give himself a second shot. But then I realized that I could, like, I couldn't live with myself if I did that because I'm struggling to move north, to walk that far south, to put that much energy in, just to go the wrong way because I'm feeling insecure about the reality that I may not be as strong of a pilot as, as some of these local pilots it was just completely insane. When these butterflies are flying north, they're not thinking about, okay, how's Bob performing? Okay, how's Jill performing? You know, how am I performing? You know, oh, you did, you know, 20 kilometers today. Oh, damn, I only did 19. They are all moving forward because it's not about their individual performance as it is as much about doing the absolute best that they can every single day for the good of their species. The monarchs are uniquely successful in doing this thing that, you know, seems damn near impossible, but that really the, their strength is inside of the selflessness of the act. And I realized that if I was going to, you know, try to mimic the success of the monarch butterfly, that I was going to have to change my perspective and, and not make this about me, but make this about something much bigger than me. There'll come a time when I won't paraglide anymore. And someone will come after me and I'm just somewhere in the middle. And that as long as I'm doing my absolute best to overcome these incredible odds, to be able to try to pull this thing off, that I am living through the wisdom of the monarch and I am on the right course. With that attitude, 
Benjamin turned his eyes north. Every day for the next month, he flew. He averaged 50 kilometers a day, soaring through northern Utah and into Idaho. He made up the time he'd lost at the beginning of the expedition. Halfway through the summer, he'd completed 50% of the miles. In late July, he made it to a small Idaho town called Arco. He climbed up to the top of a hill outside of the town and caught an upward thermal. I wasn't expecting it to be a big flight. I didn't fill up on food as I normally would have in Arco. And I was so wrong. Uh, you know, within just a few minutes was three vertical kilometers over the valley and I can go anywhere. And I feast my eyes on the mountains, the Rocky Mountains of Idaho. And I realized that I'd completely underestimated this place. And that I really wish that I'd packed a little bit more food because now I was going to have to cross some really big ranges and I didn't know where I was going to end up. As he rose higher into the atmosphere, Benjamin could spot some thunderstorms developing over the mountains in the distance. But the shifting temperatures kept scooping him up and allowing him to glide vast distances over the land. Now, all of a sudden, I've got across this area called the Lemmy Range, and it's about 40 kilometers wide. You know, the thing with paragliding is that you're not supposed to fly over an area where you don't think that you have a landing option, because you never know when you're going to run out of lift, and you never know where you're going to need to land. So you always want to make sure you have a field or something like that. So crossing a big range like this is kind of a no-no, because for a little period, you're exposed to quite a bit of risk. Benjamin decided to go for it. And sure enough, you know, Murphy's Law, I get about halfway and I'm over the biggest mountains in the Lemmy Range and I cannot find a grain of air moving up. And now I'm in a strange situation because I'm gonna, I know I'm going to have to land somewhere in there, but I can't see anywhere to land. And, you know, before I know it, I, I, I guess I just kind of kicked it into autopilot and I decided that I was just going to land on top of a mountain because I didn't want to have to suffer the consequences of landing in, a, in like a windy valley bottom. But I landed on this mountain and very quickly I realized that I was surrounded by cliffs and there was really no way to get up this mountain or walk down from this mountain. And here I am and I've got very, very little food. The thunderstorms materialized into a cold, penetrating rain. Camped on the peak and surrounded by cliffs, Benjamin hunkered down in his tent and rationed his last few pouches of peanut butter. I tried trapping small game. They don't like peanut butter, so uh, that was not successful. <laughs> yeah, I think they're called pika. I don't know. In Canada, the small game. I love game, they pikas. Like you were going to eat a pika? I love pikas too. They're like my favorite animal. I'm sorry. I just, I, they, I, I, I was in a dire situation. I mean, honestly, there's not much meat on a pika, you know, based on how cute they are and how small they are, you know, how desperate I was. The rain didn't let up. After two days, Benjamin had run completely out of food, and the storm showed no signs of clearing. He messaged Lindsay on the inReach. They decided to break their rules and see if she could hike up some food. By nightfall, she'd made steady progress through the dense forest, but was still a long way away when she decided she needed to camp for the night. Benjamin, who had navigated down the steep terrain to try to meet her, returned to the mountaintop and climbed into his sleeping bag. The next morning, Benjamin woke up to sunshine. Elated, he packed up his things, messaged Lindsay to head back down into the valley, and prepared his paraglider. This ended up being probably the most 
epic flight of the entire expedition. I was now finally, for the first time of the expedition, on the Continental Divide, literally soaring between Idaho and Montana, Idaho and Montana, um, just over these huge rocks. And it was so great because this was like what I felt like was like a rocky red carpet to my home because this looked a lot like what I was used to seeing in Canada and British Columbia and Alberta. And I felt like, yeah, this is it. Like I, I had originally intended to start this expedition on the Continental Divide. Here we are now flying over the Continental Divide. You know, there's water everywhere, there's snow everywhere, and it just felt awesome. He made it to the final state, Montana. He piloted through the Bitterroot Range and made good time north. By this point in the summer, wildfires had erupted across the West. Lindsay, who's from California, decided to return home to help support her family. Meanwhile, smoke from California, Oregon, and Washington began to cloud out Benjamin's thermals. His progress slowed. Montana was very, very difficult on me psychologically because I was just completely alone and having to wait uh, for such long periods. Because of the longer wait times between flights, he also ran out of food, often. So he ramped up the foraging. I ate more blueberries than the average human would eat in an entire lifetime. It made him think of the butterflies. What's actually happening right now is I'm having the experience of a wild creature that is, you know, at at the whim of Mother Nature and that doesn't necessarily get to choose what they want to eat today, doesn't necessarily choose what they what, where they want to go today. And that if I was going to be able to keep it together and to be able to finish this thing, that I had to just kind of get down with that and realize that I'm not in control here. And that trying to be in control of my situation is only driving me insane. That I need to just trust that if I can ultimately just be respectful of Mother Nature and know my place inside of her, that she will take care of me the same as she takes care of all of her beings. And so this kind of became like this mantra of like, don't worry, you know, yes, it's another day of smoke or high wind and you can't go anywhere, but at least you have water, right? Didn't have that before. At least you have blueberries. Didn't have that before. And to trust that no matter what, you know, she will provide. Nearing the border of Montana and Canada, Benjamin climbed Stryker Peak for his final launch. He did his best to clear a small area for him to jump off on the steep and rocky summit. When I went to launch, I broke a line. So now I'm flying around (laughs) in these really windy, smoky conditions with this paraglider that's kind of like looking half messed up. And I just have to remind myself like, okay, like you're not in control. You've never been in control, even though you always thought you were in control. And now you're just gonna go with it and see what happens. And slowly but surely, uh, every time I got close to the ground, there was another climb popping off from I don't know where, and I would just turn in it and turn in it and eventually closed in on the Canadian border. I called Lindsay where she was at in California and we celebrated um, before I ended up touching down. Because of border laws, Benjamin had to land in the U.S. On September 4th, 150 days after he'd started, Benjamin touched down and walked the last kilometer to the Canadian border. I 
I literally felt like someone had pricked a tiny little hole in the side of my head. And my head was a balloon. And all of this air was now being let out of my head. Like it was just this rush of pressure that exited my being. And it was so incredibly satisfying that I just stopped what I was doing and just rolled around on the ground, just in like incessant laughter, feeling like I was finally free. Like I was finally free of this impossible thing that I'd, I'd signed myself up for that I knew I was gonna fail, but I had to at least try. And now here we actually did it. We did it in literally five months to the day. I still can't believe that, that that was possible. I still can't believe that I was able to make it all the way from Mexico to Canada. The northbound butterflies stop in each state to lay eggs. Those eggs hatch into milkweed-eating caterpillars, transform into pupas, and then pump their wings free of the cocoon to keep flying north. As far as we know, Benjamin didn't lay any eggs, and the closest thing he had to a cocoon was his sleeping bag. But he still felt like each state offered its own kind of metamorphosis on his journey north. I feel like in Arizona, the big thing that I had to learn there was patience. I know that I'm not a very patient guy, and... So being patient uh, in terms of just knowing that good flyable days would come, the wind would become lower and I, I would be able to fly on. Um, that was really the way to go. But it took me probably until, you know, Flagstaff, until Northern Arizona to really be able to absorb that and to understand that if I'm just patient enough, you know, the weather will, will come for me to be able to fly on and not to stress so much. And in Utah, the real takeaway there for me was that if I, if I was going to succeed with this, it, I was going to have to stop looking at it as a, a selfish endeavor. It wasn't going to be about me breaking it, some record and, you know, going into the history books that this was really something that I had to do for something much bigger than me to inspire the sort of the next generation of people that would come up like me and ask themselves, okay, what can I do that's bigger than me? to extend the boundaries of what I think is possible in my life. Idaho, really the big thing there was just not to judge a book by its cover. And that I went in there just very naively thinking that it was, you know, all about fields and potatoes and not really thinking that it was going to pretty much have the ba most badass mountains of, of anywhere on the entire expedition. Montana to be so lush in natural resources and to teach me that, you know, even if I run out of food, you know, even if I can't fly for a week, a week and a half, and I'm stuck up on some alpine lake, that Mother Nature is and has always been there for me, even though I thought that, you know, I had to go this world alone and that, you know, I had to defend for myself and that, you know, this was a world of of, of hardship and, and money and, and grocery stores and what have you that, you know, I'm no different than the monarchs or the bears that whatever I need, I just need to, to, you know, take a look around and see that it's all there. It's all right there. And so to truly appreciate that was for me to completely surrender myself and surrender my, 
need for control uh, over Mother Nature and instead allow her to be smoky if she needed to be, be windy if she needed to be, and to understand that, you know, my time will come and I will pass when it's time for me to pass. For Benjamin, this journey began in the awe he had for a tiny flyer that he assumed had no better piloting skills than a post-it note. And science couldn't give him an answer for how they completed this incredible migration. We try to measure things to, you know, find answers to, you know, why does this happen? Why does this happen? But that literally these little insects may be succeeding because they are living entirely through gut instinct. And yeah, they, you know, realized that, you know, they, they weren't in control of everything that they had to move in the flow of, of their natural world. And so I feel like that maybe that's what's missing from my life in terms of the sort of the rationale that I, I take and the way that I try to make things always make sense that I can really just kind of wake up in the morning and ask myself, okay, well, what's going on? What do I want to do? What, what feels right to me? And I think that that, all the other lessons aside, was probably the greatest thing that I learned on the entire expedition. Monarch butterflies in the U.S. are on the brink of extinction. The eastern population has decreased by 80% over the last 20 years, and the western population by 99%. That's because of pesticide use that kills their food source, milkweed, along with deforestation and climate change. As pollinators, monarch butterflies play a crucial role in the ecosystem for other plants and animals, including humans. According to scientists, there's a high probability that their population will completely collapse in the next 50 years. In December, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service acknowledged that the monarch warranted protection under the Endangered Species Act, but they declined to list the butterfly at that time. Last month, two bills were introduced into Congress to help conserve and restore habitat for the monarch. You can find a link in our website to write your senators today and ask them to endorse the new legislation. And you can also find a link to Benjamin's website for information on how to plant milkweed in your yard to help the monarch's migration. Let's keep these beautiful creatures in the air. Thank you, Benjamin, for sharing your story. Benjamin and Lindsay's film about this expedition, Fly Monarca, releases on May 6th. You can follow the link on our website, dirtbagdiaries.com, to watch it. Music today from Kai Engel, John Barry, Ken Christensen, Cloud9, and Brendan O'Connell. The tracks are courtesy of the Artists or Free Music Archive. Jacob Bain and Nice Koto composed our theme song. You can find the links to the artists at our website, dirtbagdiaries.com. This episode was produced by Cordy Lazars and edited by Becca Cahal, illustration by Walker Call, graphics by Anya Miller. Becca Cahal is our executive producer, too. She has a lot of things here. She's a total badass. She's my best friend. And my wife. Love you, Becca. Anyway, I'm Fitz Cahal. You've been listening to the Dirtbag Diaries. Thanks for tuning in.